0: The Carleton College Convocation Program is a weekly lecture series that brings fresh insights and perspectives from experts in a variety of fields. The program has a rich history dating back several decades. The selected convocation speakers assist the liberal arts mission of centering thoughtful conversations within education and beyond.
1: Melissa Alvarez, and I am a sophomore from Eba Beach, Hawaii. I am strongly interested in climate action, which is present in my work as a sustainability office assistant and a member of the Food and Environmental Justice Cohort at the Community for or the Center for Community and Civic Engagement. I am extremely excited to help introduce today's convocation speaker, Adam Minter. Adam grew up in Minneapolis and is now a columnist with Bloomberg Opinion, writing about points of intersection with the environment. He was based worldwide and he covered trans-pacific trade and recycling. His first book, Junkyard Planet, Travels in the Billion-Dollar Trash Trade, is an insider's look at the world's recycling. His most recent book, Secondhand, Travels in the New Global Garage Sale, is a deep dive into the global secondhand economy. His extensive work in waste management is truly an inspiration, especially to us at the trip CE, when organizing the biggest secondhand sale at Carleton, Lighten Up. This is our annual garage sale in the spring, where students donate unneeded items from dorm decor to clothes. In 2023, the sale kept 23 tons of potential waste out of the landfill and raised $31,000 for local partner nonprofits. We consistently keep Minter's values in mind and apply them during the sale and when transitioning to things outside of graduation. With that said, please lighten up and welcome to Carlton, Adam Minter. Okay.
2: Am I coming through okay? It sounds like it. Well, good morning. I'm
1: so glad to be
2: here, Um, uh, especially as a native Minnesotan. As we were talking earlier, it's just for me, it's always a pleasure to be able to to be home and, and to talk to Folks who are always in the back of my mind is my audience so today I'm gonna take you around the world a little bit the way I do my journalism my waste journalism my secondhand journalism is to tell stories um, I don't like to lecture people I realize I'm giving a lecture today but I really like to show you how it happens and perhaps from that you can take away um, you know your own ideas and your own values. so I want to start today in China, uh, in Foshan, this was several years ago. Uh, Foshan is a major town in southern China, uh, very close to the manufacturing hubs that we've all gotten to know. I was down there reporting on junk, scrap, recycling, and a friend of mine who's a scrap dealer down there heard I was there, he called me up and he said, hey, you wanna come and see uh, my new junkyard? I love junkyards, I said, yes, pick me up, let's go. And so here we are at his new junkyard. From a distance, I didn't know what I was looking at. He asked me, um, and uh, I said, I don't know what that is. He says, that's three shredded helicopters that I imported from Los Angeles. So that's kind of the fun of going to uh, junkyards anywhere, but especially this period in China. You just never knew what you would find on the ground. So anyway, we walked around, and as we walked around, we came across this. I've been around junkyards my whole life. I thought these were extension cords, a big pile of extension cords, imported maybe from Los Angeles, which is a good bet. Um, but as I got closer, I saw they were not extension cords. They were Christmas tree lights. Um, now, I, that surprised me. What is a giant pile of Christmas tree lights doing in Southern China? Um, and so I asked him, what do you do with these Christmas tree lights? He said, sorry, we gotta go to dinner. don't have time to show you the Christmas tree light recycling facility, but next time uh, we can do that. Well. Uh, You know, I, at that point, was thinking about writing a book about recycling, and I thought, this is great. That's how I'm going to start the book. I'm going to start the book with a story about recycling Christmas tree lights. Um, And, uh, but I needed to find somebody to help me do it. So, I called up my friend Johnson Zeng. Johnson uh, is uh, from southern China as well, a town called Shantou. Um, And what Johnson was doing at this point was he was based in Canada, and he would drive around North America six months out of the year and go junkyard to junkyard to junkyard to junkyard, paying cash for scrap that he would export back to southern China where it would be recycled. Um, His specialty, his knowledge, and he was very knowledgeable, was cable and wire, uh, including Christmas tree lights. And so he said, sure, come on the road with me for a week, we'll see Christmas tree lights everywhere, then I'll send you back to China, and you'll go see my friend Raymond, and he'll show you his Christmas tree light recycling facility. I said, awesome, let's do it. So, you know, Christmas tree lights in Indiana, Christmas tree lights in Ohio, Christmas tree lights in North Carolina. I assure you, that is nothing. Okay, uh, there's a lot of waste Christmas tree lights out there. So after a week of this, driving from, if I recall correctly, St. Louis to North Carolina going to junk arts, I said, Raymond, I'm ready, to, uh, Johnson, I'm ready to go home. He said, okay, go back to Shanghai, call Raymond down in southern China and he'll host you. So that's what I did. I got back to Shanghai where I was living at the time and, uh, and Raymond said, come on down. If Johnson says you're okay, you're okay. So. The thing is, if you spend time in China, you know, you don't get to go to somebody's Christmas tree light recycling factory unless you have a really nice meal with them first, and so that's what we did. Now, this was a good meal, um, as these sorts of meals in southern China tend to be, but the other thing to remember about this is most recycling businesses around the world are family businesses. They start out that way. They may become corporate at some point, but they all start out as family. And, this, and Raymond's business is no different. Um, the only thing uh, that's unfortunate about this photo, those are Raymond's legs. He hates being photographed. So that's all you get to know of Raymond. But we sat around, we talked about Christmas tree light recycling. We also talked about the fact that I had grown up in a small Minneapolis junkyard. And that was part of my entree. People always ask me how I get into these places. One of the ways I get into these places is because I am from them. And there's a certain fraternity, if you will, uh amongst people who do this business um that they trust each other and and i would argue they should so uh here we are i'm gonna this is a video i'm gonna talk you through this um just one thing to keep in mind um this factory was designed by raymond's nephew who was sent to a technical university in china he had all kinds of offers from tech companies he wanted to go into recycling why because that's where the money is um, so he designed this system. There are other systems like it in China. It took about, I think it was about four months for them to get it tuned to work correctly. So I'm going to play this and talk you through how this works. Um, okay, so what you do is you take the Christmas tree lights, you toss them in there in bunches. There are spinning blades, and that's not smoke, that's steam, because it gets very hot in one of these systems. Um, and you need water shooting in there to, make, to keep it from basically setting on, going on fire. And once they're in there, what comes out is this goop, which is um, water, plastic, glass, and metal. And you need to separate it. So we have these shaking tables, and they're tilted upward, and water shoots across them. And it's basically panning for gold. The light stuff, the glass and the plastic, goes over here. And if you see that streak of gold there, that's the copper and brass. That's heavier. And so it's very simple. It just separates right out. Um, I always get asked what happens to the water? Uh, It just circulates through, it doesn't go back into the environment so it evaporates, so we're not seeing anything dumped out. Um, It's really hard to get one of these to work. I mean, it's calibrate, 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 um, but it eventually works and uh, it's made Raymond and his family quite wealthy. And You can see there's the copper and uh, brass. People always ask me what happens to the rubber, the plastic, Um, At this time, Raymond was primarily selling it. I'm gonna uh, go one ahead. You can see it's a little bit better view of one of those streaks of copper. He was selling it to a slipper sole manufacturer. Um, The copper and brass, they can separate it out further, but as a mixed metal, kind of a lower quality metal, these, uh, the copper is often sold to, brace yourself, Christmas tree light manufacturers. So, you know, people seem to, you know, we're in this era now where everybody's talking about we need to invent a circular economy. I am here to tell you, it already exists. It's just a question of how you want to define it. All right, so this was all done at the peak. These videos were taken at the peak of the China-US recycling trade. As we all know, that's dropped off significantly in recent years, and that's a whole nother topic. But a lot of people tend to, when they come to they say, well, China stopped importing this stuff because of the environment, the environmental consequences. There was something to that, but there's another thing to keep in mind. I want to show you here. Um, this is uh, these are this is new data from Taishin, and you can see what's happening with China's demographics. Um, it's getting older. You know the share of population age six year older is reaching twenty percent. That's a lot of old people in a country of what is it, one point three billion people? Now, if you're an economist, you know this has very serious consequences. Uh, this is what is happening to China's economic growth. Now, it's not just because of the aging population, but aging countries tend to have slower growth. Now, why does a country import? It's not exported. Why does it pay for recycling? Because Raymond pays for every single one of those Christmas tree lights. Because it needs raw materials to make stuff. Maybe it's to send Christmas tree lights back to us. Maybe it's to build infrastructure. I want you to look at this. This is all the recycling that's been shipped from the United States to China through 2018. I stop at 2018 because COVID turns everything kind of upside down um, and some other import restrictions. But look here, when did it start dropping? 2012, which is right around when you see economic growth slowing and the population aging. So when people tell you China stopped importing this stuff because of the environmental consequences of it, not exactly. Um, they stopped importing it because they didn't need as much of it anymore. And so when China suddenly blocked the import of U.S. and European stuff, it was actually following through on a trend that had already been there. So for me as somebody who covers this industry, that was sort of a, it was a weird moment because I started thinking, what's going to happen then to all of this recycling? And I had been covering this for over a decade. And it was a crisis for me because I, well, am I going to cover the trans-Pacific trade because it's, it's falling off, we don't need as much stuff. And I thought, well, where, where do I go? How do I find out what's going to happen next? I needed to do the next chapter, if you will. And so I turned to the book that has always informed me in times of crisis. I turned to Star Wars. Um, and I'm, I'm very serious about this. Uh, there's a lot of wisdom to be had from Star Wars, especially in terms of recycling. Because if you know the movies like I do, you know that in every single Star Wars film, there are junkyards. Every single one. All of the Disney series, junkyards, junkyards, junkyards. Let's start with episode one, the real episode one. Um, this, is, uh, this is significant because if you know junkyards, uh, you know, okay, this is a junkyard, but there's something funny about this junkyard. There's no actual recycling happening in it. There's a lot of junk, but where's the recycling? It's not happening. Um, The Jawas, um, they are junkers, scavengers. My family, when they came to the United States in the early 20th century from Russia, they were scavengers. So whenever I see the Jawas, I always think of my family. We're sort of the Jawas of Minneapolis. Um, But here they are taking R2-D2 into their sand crawler. Here's all their junk, but they're not recycling it. They're not chopping it up and melting it down. What are they doing? They are repairing it. And that's kind of a clue to us what's going, a little bit what's going on. Let's go to episode five, The Empire Strikes Back, uh, my favorite episode. This is, I think, the most interesting recycling moment in the entire Star Wars series. So, the Millennium Falcon needs to escape. And so it's hiding on the back of that Star Destroyer and waiting for the Star Destroyer to dump its garbage. Do you remember this scene? So they dump the garbage and the Millennium Falcon drifts off with the garbage. Now look at this garbage. Can you see that clearly? What is it? That's steel! Steel is not garbage, right? So what's going on here? Why would they dump perfectly recyclable steel? Again, here we have, uh, this is, what is this? Episode 7. i get them all mixed up. Um, a giant Star destroyer crashed into its Jakku, right? Um, nobody's recycling it. You know what, this always reminds me, if you know the pictures of of the giant uh, container ships being beached in along India for recycling? It looks like that. If this were a long India, there would be people crawling all over that, getting rid of the, uh, or recycling the uh, scrap, but they're not doing that. So what are they doing? Well, here's Ray, who's my sort of, uh, my she's sort of my spiritual guide, if you will. Uh, she goes in there and she takes parts, reusable parts. Um, and what does she do with them? She sells the parts. It's all about the reuse. There's no, uh, there's no interest in recycling. Everything gets left behind. Now, why is that? Well, if you think about it, they have an excess of raw materials in the Star Wars universe. This is episode three, the, uh, the volcano planet of Mustafar, where it's just mined and mined and mined. There's an excess of steel, free steel. You don't have to pay for it because there's so much, which then tells us why, why you would dump steel into outer space with the Millennium Falcon. And so everybody, instead of learning how to recycle, learns how to repair stuff. And you think about it, everybody in the Star Wars universe knows how to fix robots and how to fix spaceships. Chewbacca knows how to repair stuff because that's what you do with your waste. Um, And Ray, again, uh, she knows how to bypass the compressor. So, with that as introduction, let's go to Vermont. Star Wars to Vermont. This is my friend Robin Ingenthron. Um, and he is a recycler. He owns a business uh, called Good Point Recycling. They're based in Middlebury. Uh, and at this point he's standing next to a bunch of computer monitors. This is the early 2000s that he's about to ship to China. Now pause a moment. Let me just put two words together for you. E-waste. China. What do you think of? Dumping? Right? It's all going to be there, sent there and burnt. Well, here's what was happening. Robin was sending computer monitors in the early 2000s to China, and he wasn't the only one. Uh, one guy I know who was based in southern China was actually shipping as many as 50,000 computer monitors per day to southern China. It wasn't for recycling. Here's what was happening to them. They were being taken apart and refurbished. So you pull the backs off them, and then you realign them so that they can be turned into new computer monitors and shipped out as 17-inch no-name brands to places like uh, the United States, places like Europe, Circular Economy in Action. But what was everybody talking about in the early 2000s when you put China and e-waste together? Is dumping. That doesn't look like dumping. That story wasn't being told very well. More often than not, people were thinking of this. This is a place in southern China called Guiyu, not far from Shantou. Um, And this, uh, at the time, in the early 2000s, right through about the end of the 2000s, it was called the world's largest e-waste dump. Uh, So I went there. I wanna see the world's largest e-waste dump. These are, at the time, these are a bunch of uh, Samsung boards piled up in a warehouse there. Uh, If I, you know, I showed these actually a few years ago and people said, you know, they were gonna be burnt or they're gonna be mined for gold. That's not what was done with these. What you do with them is you pull the chips off because look, You've probably got 500,000 boards there, they're all the same. And they were defective out of the back of a factory in southern China. But if you have 5,000 boards, there's bound to be one chip on there that can be reused, right? And so that's what people would do. they pick the chips off, and what do they do with them? There we go. You sell them in markets. This is a place in Shenzhen called the SEG market. It's the largest wholesale market for uh, semiconductors in the world. and. Ninety percent of it is reused stuff. That's what was happening with that. Um, if you ever uh, get to Shenzhen, I, I strongly encourage you to visit SEG. It's amazing. This is just a tiny part of it. I would estimate that's five percent of it. I think it's twelve floor mall. It's a mall of used semiconductors. It's awesome. Um, and that's not the only thing in the neighborhood. Uh, SEG is located in a neighborhood of Shenzhen called Huachang Bay. And uh, in Huachang Bay, there is the fake apple market this is a fun place Uh, so if you look carefully those are when i took this i haven't been there in a few years because of covid but those are all the back those are the backs of iphones that have been pulled off and they're for sale in hua Bay in this particular market Um, here are screens pulled off of old iphones um, that have been sent there. And and just to be clear, it's not just Americans and Europeans sending stuff to China. Remember, China is the world's second largest market for Apple. So it's Chinese people's phones that are also going there. You know, we tend to think of this trade as a, a, a colonialist trade, but it's far more complicated than that. And I'll get to that in a moment. Um, and here is this market in Bay, And this is I mean, think about This is one-sixth of the market because there's three floors and this is one side of it. And you can see people, what they're doing is, they're assembling iPhones from used parts. Um, and if you go on, uh, maybe not so much on eBay anymore, but if you go uh, into the various uh, e-commerce marketplaces uh, in Asia, you will find these phones for sale, no problem. If you go online in, uh, in Malaysia, for example, and are looking for an iPhone for $50, More often than not, it's coming from Bay, and It's been reassembled from various parts. And if you don't believe me, this video is awesome. This tells the whole story. It's on YouTube. Um, It's probably got many more than 8 million views now, but it shows exactly what I was just describing to you. That is the economy of reuse that you will find in Southern China. All right, so let's go back to Vermont. Now let's have a quick drink of water. So Robin, was sending computer monitors for many years, but of course we don't have those really in the U.S. anymore, the old-style ones. So then he got into flat screens. Um, and this is his warehouse just a couple years ago, and these are flat screen monitors. And again, he's, he's sitting there thinking, what can I do? Where can these be reused? And Robin's immediate thought was, because he, he was a Peace Corps volunteer years ago in Africa, maybe people in Africa would like to reuse these. Now let me ask you to do this again. If I say Africa e-waste, can you see the images? You know the images I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Stuff like this? This is a place called Agbogbloshie Bloshi in Accra, Ghana. It has also been called the world's largest e waste dump. Uh, just a word of advice if anybody ever tells you they know where the world's largest e waste dump is, it probably isn't. Like it's, this is a trend I've found over the years. Um, and uh, Agbogbloshie Bloshi is a dump, it's the city dump, and there is electronics going on there. They are sometimes imported electronics, but they are not imported to be burnt there. The stuff that's being burnt there has been used in Ghana for 20, 30, 40 years. If you go to small villages in Ghana, like I have done, you will find U.S. televisions that were imported 20 years ago and are now on their fourth owner in Ghana. Eventually, that stuff burns out. Then it ends up in Agbog which is a much more complicated story. All right, so here's Robin, uh, and he... uh, Whenever I show this photo, I'm supposed to apologize and tell people that he's lost weight since this was taken. So, in deference to Robin. Uh, and he is talking to Olu Orga, who I've written about in second hand. He's the guy on the right. And Olu, after graduating from high school, came and worked in Agbag Bloshi where he learned how to repair computers because there's all kinds of parts and they get reused and reused and Ulu, with his partners, started importing computers and, instead of, uh, and, and diverting them up to Northern Ghana where people needed them. And so here is a photo that Olu posted to uh, WhatsApp, which is how you sell things in Northern Ghana, in Tamale and he's standing with a bunch of computer monitors that he imported from the east coast of the United States and he is not standing in front of them to advertise the fact that he intends to set them on fire he is standing in front of them to say who wants some good quality used computer monitors and Olu and his partners sell to everybody schools, parents who want a computer for their kids um, the local hosp- one of the local hospitals, I've been there and seen their computers Everybody up there is buying used computers. Why? Um, One, price point, of course. Tamale, Ghana is not the wealthiest place uh, you'll find in West Africa. And two, um, think of it as they're massively pre-tested. If they've been used for years in the U.S., they're probably still good, right? All right, so here is Main Street Tamale, a really interesting place. Um, There's no Best Buy store here. There's no Apple store. Instead, there is Chendiba Enterprises, which is the largest electronics store in Tamale. And here is the inside of Tamale. That's Kamal who owns it in a yellow shirt, and he's filling out a sales order for used computers. And he gives them warranties on it, and that's how computers move in much of West Africa. It's not new stuff. It's used stuff, and it's good stuff. Um, Here we are down at Accra. Uh, And this is a a store I've spent quite a bit of time in uh, learning about the business called Bougie Computers. Um, Bougie is owned by a guy by the name of Steve Edison, and he has a wonderful repair operation. And I want to show you something about this repair operation. What you see here on the shelves are a bunch of old laptops. Um, some of these have been returned by c- customers, some were imported. Um, think of them as a kind of library. So you show up at Buji with your old laptop and you've got a problem with the monitor for part of it or there's a hard drive problem, whatever. He's got a library there, literally, and what you do is you just take off one part and put on the other. Um, they do repairs there that you will not get done at the Apple store or anywhere else they'll they refuse to do it they'll say yeah you better buy a new one you know but uh the ingenuity of uh these repair techs acro- acro- around the world I mean I'm focused on Ghana right now and the Ghanaian techs are really good um if you ever get a chance to go to a place called Kumasi which is in the center of uh of uh, Ghana it's everybody says I've been there. I don't know the best um, mechanics in all of Africa. Uh, I saw them do some pretty amazing board-level work. But anyway, all right, so back in Vermont. So Robin spent a bunch of time in, uh, in West Africa, in Ghana primarily, and the thing that impressed him was these parts libraries. And he thought to himself, why can't we do that in the US? This is important to me because so often we think, ah, you know, we should really, you know, West Africa needs to learn from our environmental practices. But what Robin started to take away from this is, maybe it should go the other way around. And so thus inspired, he set up an operation, he calls it his eBay operation, uh, in his warehouse where he has his employees take apart the televisions, the flat screen monitors, and put the various parts onto eBay. And you would be shocked and how many people around the world buy those parts. And it didn't happen before he started doing it. Again, this was learning from an emerging market, not the other way around. Uh, Here's Robin uh, talking to Wahab Muhammad, who I wrote about quite a bit in second hand. And one of the things Wahab and Robin started figuring out is um, not every part sells to people on eBay. Um, Some of them are too old. Well, where are all the older televisions? They're in Ghana. So what they started doing is Wahab came over and said we need this part, this part, this part, this part. And Robin said, okay, we'll pull those and why don't you take them over as samples and see how it works out. And that's what Wahab did and uh, when he got back, and this was a Zoom conversation, uh, he's with his primary buyer, who's a guy who formed the, uh, the mechanics union in Kamasi. And they're looking at the parts, discussing with Robin what ones have already sold. And so they now have a business where they're sending these parts that wouldn't sell in the U.S. because the TVs are newer and sending them to Africa and you have much more reuse. And reuse is better, of course, than buying new and it's better than recycling and everybody wins. So I just just love this model of business. It's no longer the ideas flowing in one direction. It's the ideas and the stuff flowing in circular directions. It's truly a circular economy. Uh, To me, it's the ideal circular economy. All right. I'm only gonna do two charts, two very boring charts. And I don't even know if these are gonna be clear, but this sort of makes my point. These were made, this was made by a guy by the name of Josh Leposky, who's a, uh, an academic in Newfoundland. And what he did is he wanted to figure out how the flow of e-waste, and by e-waste he means just used electronics, has been changing. And he, he I won't go into how he did it, but the, the thing that you wanna keep in mind here is the blue dots, The blue circles are countries that export, okay, like the U.S., like Europe. Um, And the green is when you export to an emerging market. The yellow lines, this is 1996, the yellow lines are when emerging markets trade with each other. Okay, this is 1996. What I want you to look at, we're going to jump forward uh, to 2012. I want you to notice how much yellow is about to appear. That's been happening underneath our feet. But we're all focused on what's going on, you know, between the U.S. and China, or the U.S. and Africa. But the rest of the world is moving on from that narrative. There's something much more interesting happening. Um, And so uh, folks who are interested in this topic, I encourage them to read Josh's work, but I encourage folks to think beyond just this narrative of developed developing. The the rest of the world has moved beyond that. All right, I'm going to just briefly talk to you about one last thing. Anybody in the room recognize that store? What that would be? I'll be super impressed. That's okay. It looks nice, though, huh? It's a nice thrift store. What is it? It's good guesses. Megapaca. Anybody heard of Megapaca? All right. Megapaca is the largest thrift store chain in Central America, about 130 stores, based in Guatemala which is the largest importer of used clothes from the United States. We always think of Africa being the largest importer, but actually it's Guatemala. And there are about 80 uh, eighty in Guatemala. And so they import enormous amounts of clothes. Nobody comes closer. They're probably the largest importer of clothes in the United States. You can see these are quite nice stores. Um, this is uh, their main warehouse in Esquintola. Uh I was there a few months ago. Um, And it's huge, it's very sophisticated, and they are very good at figuring out how to price stuff. They use AI, they use all kinds of algorithms so that the stuff moves, and 90% of the stuff they put on their racks, and it's all imported from the United States, sells, which is amazing, because the average U.S. thrift store only sells around one-third of the stuff that goes on the racks. So they're better, they do a really good job, and guess what they've just done? They've just opened a U.S. website with the idea that in three years they're gonna start selling their clothes back to you in their stores. That's the new narrative. That's the world that's happened. I'll oh, even focus on other narratives. And to me, uh, in that that trailer right there is uh, in a skundula, and it's advertising the U.S. site to people in Guatemala saying, hey, call up your relatives, because there's a lot of Guatemalans in the United States. Call up your relatives. You love you love Mega Pac in Guatemala. Call up your relatives. Here's a coupon for them to use at the U.S. store. You can go. You go on your phone right now. Look up Shop Megapaka, and they'll get a discount. And so they're targeting, uh, starting out by targeting Central Americans in the U.S., but they're coming for you. They want to sell your stuff back to you, you know, and they're going to be able to do it much better than, uh, than Goodwill. At least that's the theory. We'll see. The stores won't open for another three years, but the website is up. All right. So with that, I just want to leave you with an image of Ray. As, I, as I've always said, you know, she's, she's reuse. She doesn't recycle, she reuses. She's sort of my, she's my spirit animal. And uh, I'm open to any questions at all. And I thank you so much for being here today and listening uh, to my travels.
0: Thank you very, very much, Adam. I loved it and I love the Star Wars references. Thank you for that. Uh, we're going to have Q and A in just a moment. Just quick, like to mention, next week we're going to have and I wish I had practiced my pronunciation. I always have trouble with this word, but we have Stefan Ingmar Lindberg, professor of political science and director of the university-wide research infrastructure VDEM Institute at the University of Gothenburg. And the title of the talk will be Democracy and, and Here It Is Autocracy Worldwide. Third wave of autocrat okay here's an even worse one for me. Autocratization escalating. That is next week. Convo lunch, we still have a few seats at the table. If you'd like to join us, if you're a community member, if you're a student faculty staff, talk to me afterwards, we'd love to have you. Now it's time for Q&A. Who'd like to kick us off with some Q&A for Adam? And the first one is always the hardest. Aha, thank you. Hi, Adam. Uh, I love Junkyard Planet. It's a great book. Thank you. really, really enjoyed it. Um, Part of what I loved about it, having lived in Minneapolis for a long time with stories about your grandmother and how you learned about the junk trade through her experiences. Could you talk a little bit about your family and that business?
2: Yeah, Uh, my family um, is a junk family, we're junkers. So uh, my great-grandfather, Abe Leader came to the US uh, in the early 20th century uh, wanting, from Russia, uh, wanting to be a vaudeville performer. Um, He spoke no English he had no trade, and he got on a boat to Galveston, Texas. So that was not good. And so when he got off the boat in Galveston, uh, he had to find a job. And the only job, I always call junk the entrepreneurial opportunity of last resort. If you can't do anything, you can always pick rags off the street, cans off the street. And that's what he did. And you start out with a backpack maybe, you get a horse-drawn cart, you get a truck, um, and he eventually made his way up to Minneapolis, where uh, my family has had a junk business uh, for uh, since since the well in the Minneapolis since the '30s. Um, my earliest memories are of being in the family junk warehouse, um, just seeing electrical scrap and pipe scrap. And my father and my grandmother, they not only showed me how to work there, but they showed me how to work. So some of the things, you know, I learned to do is separate, you know, plumbing scrap, the brass from the steel. You know, and I, I always joke, if somebody had taken pictures of me as a child doing that uh, and put it in, you know, a magazine, it'd be called a human rights violation. But that's what I did. And it's given me the opportunity, I think, it's one of the reasons why I've been able to do this very unusual beat. Because this is a very folks who own junkyards, and I know this quite personally, they don't, recycling options, they don't want to open the doors, they don't want to show you the back rooms, and uh, there's there's shame involved with it, sometimes there's environmental issues uh, I'm not going to deny that, whatever it is there might be 8 year old kids like me working at the back room um, and and so having come from that it just it allows me to relate a little better I mean, Junkyard Planet, it could not have been written unless I had I had been part of that. It's in my, it's literally in my blood. Thanks.
3: Thank you for coming and speaking to us today. You talked a lot about electronics and metals being reused and refurbished. Is there a future for the same type of circular economy for plastics?
2: Yes, and, and the plastics, uh, you know, obviously when you're talking, the difference between electronics and plastics is you're, talk, you're talking about devices and a, a single material, um, but plastics have been recycled uh, in China since the 1980s. If We're just going to talk about China. Um, in Junkyard Planet, I actually document some of those early efforts. Um, they're not, they were not nice. They, in many cases, they are not nice. Um, But the technology, simple and more complex, is there. Um, There's a long way to go, but there's also no question um, that the technology related to plastic recycling is getting better. I know that plastic recycling is an extremely controversial subject for a lot of people, and it it intersects with the desire to see plastics uh, banned in some cases or production reduced. Um, I'm of the belief that we are going to have plastics and if you're going to have plastics, some of them are going to need to be recycled. So I think uh, what we're seeing in recent years, especially developments in the US, Europe, and China, advanced chemical recycling um, are gonna make a real difference in that. Um, I think there's also, just to note briefly, like there's always been a focus on bottles and packaging scrap when it comes to plastics, single use labels, or uh, single use packages, snicker bar packages, those remain a problem. Um, But a lot of plastics are recycled at a very high rate. People don't think about them, but automotive plastics. The tail lights on a car, it's an extremely expensive resin. And because it's expensive, people actually in the recycling business make an effort to take those tail lights off, and they're recycled at a very high rate. So a lot of the challenge related to plastics will be creating markets to incentivize people uh, to do that recycling.
0: So you talked about iPhones being reused. Yeah. Um, recently, there's been a move by Apple to make that harder. How do you see that changing the reuse market?
2: Well, it's not just a recent move. They've been uh, they've been trying to make uh, re- make iPhones harder to uh, to reuse since they sealed off the battery. I mean, remember back in the day when you could just lift the back of a, a, a you know back of a phone off and you put a battery in. Um, you know. Now it's software locks and things like that, which are are really the issue. Um, You know, I am a big proponent in second hand and in my work in Bloomberg, I have been editorializing for years in favor of right to repair laws. And it's interesting, I am not an Apple defender. In fact, I have a very bad relationship with Apple. Um, They haven't been very happy with some of the things I've written, but I will give, you know, credit where credit is due. They have signed on to some right to repair legislation, especially California, which was just passed, and I think Apple's position has always been, we're willing to do this, but we want to see the smaller manufacturers do it as well. So I think everything's moving in the right direction. And I think Apple, at least they were supportive of the California right to repair law. I think there's a long way to go. Um, but, but I don't think there's as much of an impediment as, as they have been anymore. So I'm wondering, wonderful talk, great to get some good optimistic vision for a change. Yeah.
1: Uh, but how promising is the reuse growth really solving the waste problem, do you think?
2: Well, I, I look at it this way. I mean, I don't think that there is any any single way uh, you know to, to solve waste. I mean, I ultimately, and this is the theme of, of both of my books is that ultimately, if you want to solve waste issues, you need to solve consumption. Um, and and that's that's that ultimately is where it comes down to, but I do believe reuse as a model is going to be, is is important, it's gonna become more important. We're seeing in Europe, for example, uh, uh, a lot more leasing of electronics. Um, And leasing means reuse. And one of the things that's really exciting about, um, you know, the leasing model is it also requires the manufacturers, if you're a leasing company, you want the most durable phone possible. And you want the most repairable phone possible. And so uh, there's been rumors for a while, Apple wants to get into leasing. And I think they will, in part because recent models of the iPhone have become much more repairable. Um, you can now take them apart much easier. Uh, the new version, uh, the 15, the Pro, is much more easy to take apart. You won't you won't risk uh, ripping apart the cables when you do it. So I think it's part of the solution, um, and I think it's, it's one that needs to be encouraged because there's so much that gets wrapped up into it, like durability. I mean, we know there's lots of studies, um, you know, whether from corporates or from NGOs, whoever it is, the longer you use an object, whether it's a sweater or a phone or whatever it is, the, the lower its carbon impact. And then I think reuse helps with that.
1: So here's a question. Yeah. I need you to pathologize me a little bit here. So why are we so obsessed with having new stuff? Yeah. Like, why do I... Like, instead of going to Goodwill to buy clothes for my kid, I just wait for stuff to go on clearance at Old Navy and yeah. buy it for the same price I could have bought it at Goodwill. Like, why do I want the new stuff? The
2: science of marketing. You know, I think, I think that, that's it. I mean, look, I always want to say when I, give, when I give talks and I talk about reuse, I don't want to stand up here as a saint. I buy new stuff, too. We all do. You know, it's, it's just the nature of the economy that we live in, and everything ultimately wears out. You know, I think it's marketing. I just think we've we've become well. Let me put it to you this way: Um, it's very hard to get data on secondhand economies. So one of the things when I was writing secondhand is I wanted to know in places like Ghana. Nigeria where I spent time for the book and Benin in particular you know how much of their economy is secondhand because if you walk down the street in Lagos in a commercial district it's full of secondhand shops but if you look for the, the the data related to that it's not there why well the lending institutions the World Bank the IMF they're not impressed by the number of secondhand boutiques you have they're interested in the amount of manufacturing of new stuff that you have, you know, new retail sales. It's not measured, you know, so that also that becomes a kind of a perverse incentive to, to move away from secondhand, even in these places where you have these really well established secondhand economies. So that's just thinking out loud, but yeah, and the science of marketing. So thank you for uh, thank you
3: for coming again. Yeah. Uh, two really quick questions for you. One. Um, and I don't know if this was a couple of years ago, but it, it seems like it goes back and forth. So anytime uh, countries are mad at the U.S., um, they refuse to take our recycling um, and other sorts of, of items where we used to sort of ship plastics to China and then you hear something about some trade agreement didn't work out and so, so can you sort of talk through the, the politics of countries accepting or not accepting U.S. items for e-recycling or whatever right. the case may be. And then the second question um, relates to um, um, it seems like there's a system for this e-cycling in, in some countries. But I can think of other countries where it's not. So you sort of, um, you highlighted the, what appears to be a junkyard. Uh, not a junkyard, but a waste. Uh, yeah. uh, whatever that thing is called. Um, and so how do we make it safer right. for some of these um, maybe developing countries uh, to do this sort of e-cycling to get out the toxins and all that stuff right. associated with it?
2: I really like, uh, let me let me answer the second question because it's something I'm very passionate about and then I'll get to the first one. Uh, but the second question is, you know, what do we, because ultimately if, if we're sending stuff, if, actually I should be careful with my lane, because we don't send it, they buy it like no nothing moves without a buyer this idea that stuff is dumped it's imported I mean the the shipping manifest show it you can just look them up but ultimately if you're going to use a tv for 40 years in Ghana then what you know what happens to that tv and I think that's a very serious issue Um, and I think that our our framework for thinking about this is misplaced right now you know Apple and Samsung, they would like the, the recycling to take place in developed countries and not have the stuff exported. Um, but ultimately, it's in our environmental interest to see the stuff exported and reused. So in my opinion, and I've, I've written on this, I think it's time to start thinking about how to actually locate some of these advanced recycling facilities subsidize them and put them into emerging markets. I think they're great employment um, you know, models and I think it's good for their environment. And again, it boosts circularity. Unfortunately, like the regular global regulatory framework is recycle it where it's used. So Europe is trying to ban the export. Well, they have, I mean, there's a lot of bans on exports of electronics. I don't believe that's in our environmental interest because it means that stuff is going to be recycled before its useful life is over. And I think we should be promoting long, useful life. If you want to do that, then you need to move recycling infrastructure into emerging markets. Um, on, uh, related to the bans, uh, you know, on imports and exports, it's a really complicated uh, topic. But in regard to China, so I, I have notes on this. In 2014, four years before China decided to ban the import of US and European and other recyclables, I had conversations with regulars saying, this is coming. Why is it coming? Because China wants to be self-sufficient in raw materials. And I think that's really interesting. Um, I think that's part of the reason they did this. And it's, it very much fits into the overall context of what we know about politics in China now. Xi Jinping wants China to be self-sufficient in food, in raw materials, you know, because of, in semiconductors, and so, also in junk, because it's an important input into raw materials. I mean, at one point uh, in the mid-20-teens, almost 50% of China's copper supply was recycled, came from recycled resources. So if you look at it in that framework, one of the reasons they did that, and they notified the WTO before they notified anybody they were going to ban the import of of recyclables, is it was an economic prerogative as well as an environmental one. And ironically, a lot of, so I tell this story um, often, I left China in 2014 and moved to Malaysia. My family and I, we moved to Malaysia. And I talked before I went, you know, you say goodbye to your friends. And I talked to a lot of my friends in the recycling industry in southern China. I said, hey, guys, you know, if you ever uh, come down to Malaysia, give me a call. Didn't hear from anybody. You know, 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017. Then 2017 comes around and word is China's gonna ban the import of this stuff from around the world. All of a sudden, all these recycling guys are moving down to Malaysia saying, hey, let's have dinner. I haven't heard from them in three, four years, you know, because they're coming down there because they want to relocate their businesses. Um, in Malaysia, they will say publicly they were opposed to it, but they saw it as an economic growth opportunity. So it, it gets really complex, um, you know, the prerogatives for, for bans. And, and and China still allows recycling in, it's just limited the types of recycling that it, it keeps out. What it tends to let in is the stuff it needs. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Um
0: I'm uh, curious about how uh, your idea of, like, a new reusing economy relates to the recycling establishment that's already in place. Like, do you, is it the case that um, after, if we get in the habit of, um, if, if like, countries like the U.S. get in the habit of reusing a lot more stuff, uh, can it be can it fit into recycling facilities like after it's been reused time and time again? Or like, does a, reuse, a reusing economy like come into competition with, with recycling interests?
2: Well, it does. Um, you know, that's always been a problem uh, from a reuse economy standpoint. I mean, uh, during sort of the, 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 the great fever and fear of recycling exports, um, Samsung was one of the uh, Companies that was a big sponsor of NGOs trying to keep uh, electronics from being exported out of the U.S. and emerging markets where they could be reused. That's verifiable. They they uh, were a big sponsor and member of what's called the Basel Action Network. Um, so there is that tension. You know, if you're if you're a new man if you're a manufacturer, uh, do you want to compete against your your stuff? But but the funny thing is they're evolving now. I mean, even Apple. Uh, Apple, you know, has their take-back program. They'll give you 50 bucks back or 100 bucks back on a phone. Those phones are refurbished and sent overseas. So they're getting into it. And I know a lot of e-cyclers. And if you just look at the um, e-cycling trade journals, you'll see these companies that were founded in part to recycle this stuff, take it apart, pull the semiconductors, you know, send them to whoever can recover the gold, they now have thriving uh, second-hand businesses where they're actually refurbishing the stuff. and and selling it. And one of the reasons they're doing that is because uh, the devices are getting lighter and lighter. There's less gold in them than there used to be. And so there's more value in, say, uh, a four-year-old Samsung Galaxy screen than there is gold in these phones. So the economic incentives are starting to turn turn it that way. It's never going to be clean. And, and the great thing about recycling, as a reporter, is there's an exception to every trend. You know, I can tell you, well, this is happening, but somebody can come around and tell you, but, 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 but. So, but, but I think that the economy um, can and is adapting, and, and refurbishment is not new. I mean, we've been doing it uh, in this country for decades. I mean, uh, John Deere and, and all these heavy machinery manufacturers, they refurbish and resell their stuff, and they've been doing it for decades.
0: I guess I have a question. Sure. I've seen photos, videos of shipbreaking yards. It looks interesting and terrifying. Have you ever been to a shipbreaking yard?
2: I have, and it is both fascinating and terrifying. <laughs> and uh, you, I mean, uh, I've been underneath some of those uh, things, and you stand underneath and you watch the guys working on it, and you think that plate could fall right on me, and so you back up. It's uh, it's a huge business. It's an important business, and it's. Like a lot of these businesses, it's improving what, you know, the pictures that you saw uh, that shocked everybody, was it, 15, 20 years ago, um, those kinds of operations don't exist anymore. I would not say that they conform to U.S. Uh, or European occupational and safety and health standards, but they're better than they used to be, um, and that's, that's a good thing.
0: Well, it looks like we might be out of questions. If you have any concluding comments, we would love to hear them.
2: Um, Just thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate the chance to be here.
0: And thank you very much for being here, Adam. Thank you for, for your
2: convocation. And thank you all for being here. We'll see you next week.